This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Good evening, and welcome to a RAND Issues in Focus about the implications of the standoff between Russia and the West over the Ukraine. I'm Iao Katagiri, Director of Community Relations, and it is my privilege to introduce our speaker, Olya Oliker. Olya Oliker is a Senior International Policy Analyst at RAND and Associate Director of the International Security and Defense Policy Center. Her areas of expertise include international relations, national security policy, and security sector reform in the conflict, post-conflict, transition, and development contexts. Her research examines these issues in relation to Russia, Central Asia, the Caucasus, Iraq, and Afghanistan. She also studies international efforts to advance reform in countries in transition. She has authored numerous studies about Russian military and foreign policy, peacekeeping and stability operations, Afghanistan and Central Asia, and the global security environment. And now, please join me in welcoming Olya Oliker. Thank you so much, and thank all of you for being here. Um, I, I'm very pleased to address this group, which I know includes um, a lot of very illustrious folks and a lot of um, great friends of RAND. Um, so um, I'm here to talk to you about today about Russia, Ukraine, and what, uh, what has been going on and what may go on in the future means for the United States. Um, as um, as I think we've all noticed in the last few months, we've seen uh, the relationship between the United States and Russia shift from one that was sometimes tense but generally seemed pretty cooperative uh, to what really does look like a standoff. And all of this uh, seems to be because of a peninsula somewhere in the Black Sea, uh, which, uh, you know, not a lot of people, I think, you know, people were maybe aware there was a Crimean War, but maybe not specifically where, where it was fought. Um, so, you know, it's, I think it's a valid question to ask, how do we get here? And uh, where do we go from here? So to unpack this, what I'm going to do is uh, break it down into four components, uh, talk a bit about each, and then um, I'm really looking forward to hearing from you, hearing your questions, your comments, and your thoughts on this. So first, I'm going to talk about Ukraine and Crimea. Then I'm going to turn briefly to what's been going on in Russia and um, domestically. Third, I'll talk about what all of this means in the context of relations between uh, the United States and Russia. And then fourth, I'll talk, some, I'll talk a little about options going forward. So first, what happened in Ukraine? And the way I like to think about what's happened over the last few months is in terms of different stories, different narratives, kind of different perspectives on the situation. So here's one, one story. Late last fall, the people of Ukraine took to the streets to protest a corrupt, autocratic leader who had turned his back on an association agreement with the European Union and instead inked a deal with Russia to bail out Ukraine's faltering economy. These people who came out into the streets demanded his ouster. 
He, in turn, had his police fire on peaceful protesters and then fled the country. Ukraine's parliament was forced to put an interim government in place to rule until new elections could be held. But Russia then paid people to cross into Ukraine, to cross the border, to protest this new government. And then they used that as a pretext to grab control of the Crimean Peninsula. And since then, Russia has been fomenting unrest elsewhere in Ukraine, potentially in order to invade and grab more territory. So that was one story. Here's another story. A mob went into the streets of Kiev and other places in Ukraine to demand the ouster of a democratically elected leader who made a choice uh, that was fairly popular, at least among some um, portions of Ukraine, certainly no, um, no less popular than the other options. He made the choice to work with Russia to save a country in dire economic straits because association with the EU would have led to further austerity and hardship for a large proportion of the population. That mob, egged on by the United States and the EU, which were providing some financing at least for it, included a variety of right-wing, ultra-nationalist groups. And these people threw Molotov cocktails at police, they took police hostage, they engaged in a variety of violent and provocative actions. The parliament then, perhaps frightened, perhaps cowed, took a series of illegal votes, one of them being to oust the democratically elected president and appoint a government with no legitimacy, just simply a government appointed by the parliament with um, you know, no, no legal reason to be there. As a result of this, there's been chaos throughout Ukraine, and these right-wing militias have been roaming the streets. In Crimea, the ethnic Russian population, terrified of the prospects of a fascist government, the prospects of future discrimination, voted to secede from Ukraine and then chose to join Russia. In other parts of the country, ethnic Russians and Russian speakers are rising up against this illegitimate government and seeking Russian help and protection. So these aren't the only two stories out there, but they are two of the most important. And of course, those of you who've been following the news know that the first story is the one you hear from a lot of Western news sources, and the second story is the one that you hear from a lot of Russian news sources. And indeed, it's the one that Russian television news has been broadcasting, including into East and Southern Ukraine, where a lot of people, whether ethnically Russian or Ukrainian, speak Russian as their first or primary language. The problem is, that neither story is all true or all false. Yanukovych, the ousted president of Ukraine, was stunningly corrupt. He was also democratically elected, and every government Ukraine has had since independence in the 1990s has been pretty stunningly corrupt. There are ultra-right-wing groups in the new government, but they're far from most of it, and the interim government is trying to get control over the militias. In fact, one militia leader in a standoff with uh, Ukrainian police uh, seems to have shot himself twice in the chest. Um, so some of the protesters in southern and eastern Ukraine probably are paid by Russia, or at least reimbursed by them for their expenses, but far from all of them. And there really is nervousness and discontent in these regions. And then the other problem is that even if you do choose to believe one of, one of these two stories or another story and dismiss everything else as bunk, the fact is that other people in the US, in Russia, in France, in Poland, and in Ukraine believe one of these other stories. And they act based on that belief. So for instance, uh, economic analysis indicates that the austerity measures called for by the EU and the IMF won't hurt Ukraine all that much and will make them better off over time, and you know that there is pretty strong evidence to suggest that, 
If Ukrainians in the South and East don't believe that, they will continue to be afraid of these austerity measures and think that they're going to harm them and they're going to oppose them. So that's Ukraine, and we'll come back to Ukraine. But I'd like to first briefly talk about Russia, where the annexation of Crimea is incredibly popular, where Putin's approval ratings are through the roof, and where, just as Russia was consolidating control of Crimea, it was also taking the latest step in shutting down what's left of independent media. Um, the editor of an online news site, Lenta.ru, was fired, in fact, for running an interview with one of these far-right Ukrainian um, leaders. And after she was fired, her, um, most of her senior editorial staff resigned, effectively kind of taking the um, operation out of commission, though they are back in a kind of reconstituted, uh, more private, less approved form. Um, now, in Russia, most people are actually fairly comfortable getting their news from their Kremlin-controlled television and newspapers that are pretty easy to get. The people looking to independent uh, news media for information are people who already distrust what the government's telling them. So these, people, these folks are preaching to the choir. Shutting them down, it's not as though it's cutting off information to most people who are going to get it from other news sites. Uh, you know, the, the internet is uh, still pretty widely available. It's really just adding insult to injury. And it's worth noting in this regard that as of today, uh, Voice of America, which is in fact US funded, um, has been told that its license for AM radio broadcasting in Russia isn't going to be renewed. So the political opposition in Russia hit its height probably a couple of years ago, in winter of 2011, when tens of thousands of mostly middle-class Russians took to the streets, and it was winter in Russia, so you know it takes a lot to take to the streets in the winter in Russia, to protest the fact that a presidential election was coming up, Vladimir Putin was running for a third term, and they didn't seem to have much of a choice in the matter. Um, now, Putin still won handily, uh, and you know, even with all of the reports you may have heard of fraud, he probably would have won handily no matter how free and fair the election was. But all of these people out in the streets made him nervous. And since then, there's been a pretty substantial crackdown on the opposition. Arrest, harassment, and real limits on their actions. So for instance, you'll see newspaper stories of opposition protests, and you'll see photographs. What you don't see is the fact that in order to get a permit to protest, these people had to say they were going to stay in a certain area. And so it's not as though it's a protest that's wherever you go and everyone can see it. It's sort of delineated. And again, people are preaching to the choir. They're talking to people who've come out who already agree with them. And in the meantime, Putin's paranoia, which has led him to take these steps against the opposition, has also taken him to a place where he makes most of his decisions by himself, maybe informed by a tight inner circle, but probably really confirmed by a tight inner circle. Um, and we, you know, there are a lot, there's a lot of reason to think that he might have been flying by the seat of his pants a little bit over the last few weeks here. But, um, you know, which we see kind of in all these Russian officials who were saying, no, of course we have no interest in taking Crimea. We respect Ukrainian sovereignty. Wait, what happened? Uh, yes, Crimea. <laughs> so by closing himself off to very real debate that does still exist within Russia, there are people voicing a wide range of views. But by closing himself off to this, Putin is creating a situation that is dangerous for Russia going forward. So the bottom line is you have an extremely popular Russian president who is making decisions without broad consultation, or even particularly any consultation, an opposition that's fragmented and weak, but at the same time, the knowledge that there is enough of a core of dissatisfaction that people will come out in the streets when they're unhappy. 
and this could be harnessed. And you know, if people are sufficiently unhappy, even in the face of the substantial propaganda that you get when you control the news media. Okay, so let's go back to Ukraine and talk a little bit about what it means for the United States. The US and its European allies and partners responded to the annexation of Crimea with sanctions on Russia and statements that this action, this annexation of Crimea, was uh, unacceptable and illegal. It is, in fact, pretty illegal. Um, Russia has spent a great deal of the last 20 years talking a pretty big game on the importance of sovereignty in general. Um, and in Ukraine's case specifically, it is a signatory to an agreement um, to commit to, to Ukraine's sovereignty, specifically at its security. That was part of the deal when Ukraine gave uh, agreed to have the nuclear weapons on its soil uh, taken away and dismantled. So, you know, kind of taking a chunk of territory from another country is a fairly clear violation of sovereignty. I mean, invasion's another one. There are lots of examples of violations of sovereignty, but this, this definitely meets uh, the criterion. Of course, as um, Vladimir Putin made clear in his speech on March 18th regarding the annexation of Crimea, this isn't only about Ukraine. That thread in the Russian narrative, um, if you think back uh, to the beginning, that thread about Western support for the activists that overthrew Yanukovych is really important. Because from Russia's perspective, the events in Ukraine this winter, just like uh, in spring, just like the Orange Revolution there in 2004, the Rose Revolution in Georgia the year before that, and even the pro-Western uh, opposition in Russia, are foreign-funded efforts to weaken Russia, to prevent Russia exercising its natural influence in the countries on its periphery, which, you know, one can keep in mind, weren't just part of the Soviet Union, they were part of Russian Empire long before that. Russia hasn't bought into this notion that these countries, these people, are making independent choices. Uh, it views itself as competing with the United States for influence and control over this territory. And this isn't new as of the Putin administration. If you look at government documents from Russia, military doctrines, national security strategies, going back to the time of independence, going back to Boris Yeltsin in 1992 to 93, what are they, talk they talking about? They're talking about the threat of NATO enlargement, the need to protect ethnic Russians outside of Russia, and Russia's close ties and very important relationships with the countries in its neighborhood. And Ukraine is particularly central to this because, again, as Putin said very clearly in his speech, the histories of Russia and Ukraine are so intertwined. But here again, we get to this, um, these stories of competing narratives because they're intertwined in ways that aren't viewed the same in the two countries. For Russia, Ukraine was always part of Russia. Uh, it was, in fact, the hinterlands of Russia, kind of the provinces. For most Russians, the Ukrainian language isn't a separate language. It's bad Russian. <laughs> so Ukrainians, not so surprisingly, have a kind of different view. They see themselves as having a proud, independent tradition as a nation, as an ethnicity. Yes, they were. They have not been independent for long, and they were independent once before in another form in the middle of World War I, but you know. But they do feel very strongly that they are a nation, and they deserve a state like any other nation, and they have their state. Um, but what, so what this means is the possibility of loss of influence in other post-Soviet states rankles Russia. The possibility of not having sway over Ukraine is anathema. So for Russia, it's about Ukraine, and it's about the United States, and it's about its influence in the neighborhood. 
The question, as we're all kind of looking around and looking forward, is what else is it about? Because under Putin, Russia has worked very hard to build itself up as a global actor, sometimes in cooperation with the US, sometimes in opposition. So is this just about the region? Or is Russia flexing its muscles and demonstrating its strength to a broader purpose? And if so, what is that broader purpose? Prior to the events of the last few weeks, the general view was that Russia, at its view of the region, it certainly wanted influence. It was asserting its privileged interests. But it didn't want territory. This grab of Crimea, these troops that have been in and out of the area near Ukraine's border, the protests in Ukraine that Russians have been involved in, and last but not least, that very nationalistic speech that Vladimir Putin made, they make one wonder. So do they want more than Ukraine? And if so, what do they want? And one problem in this context for the United States and its European allies is that while they certainly don't want Russia to go any further, uh, they'd rather it stepped back, it's not because they care a great deal about Ukraine specifically. I mean, this sounds a bit harsh, and I don't mean to say they don't care about the principle. They care about the principle, and they're worried about the possibility that this means is broader than Ukraine, but they have no alliance commitments to Ukraine. They have made no promises to protect it, except under that same Budapest agreement that Russia is a signatory to, which is a security assurance rather than a commitment. Um, they have alliance commitments to each other through NATO. So if Russia does have designs beyond Ukraine, then Poles, Romanians, and of course uh, the people in the Baltic states are very, very nervous. And when they're very nervous, we in the United States should be at least a little nervous too, because we have treaty commitments to them, and the nuclear shadow does hang over any possibility of a military confrontation with Russia. So where do we go from here? These events that have taken place clearly changed the nature of US and European relations with Russia, at least for the time being. To what extent depends in large part on what Russia does next. And I say this because we hear, we hear a lot about how the US lost Russia. This is the product of bad policy over the last 20 years. But you know, it's not actually the job of the United States to prevent other countries from all sorts of bad behavior wherever they may be. And it's not that clear to identify other policies over the last 20 years that would have worked. I mean, for instance, Thomas Friedman um, wrote in the piece that appeared today that we were too hard on Russia uh, in the early 90s. Other people argue that we were too soft on Russia. Um, but Russian positions on all of these issues, as I said before, have been really pretty consistent. Um, so what? While Russia was worrying about NATO enlargement and influence in, in the neighborhood, Washington and Brussels knew this. What they thought that they could do was, over time, help integrate Russia, help make Russia part of the community to the extent that the independence of its neighbors didn't feel so threatening. So it didn't work out quite as planned. It actually looked for a while like it had worked out, right? It seemed like that was where we were going and that was where we were. Turned out that it was wrong, but it was wrong in a very peculiar set of circumstances that in their specifics were not predicted, even in their, if in their generalities, they were always a possibility. So it doesn't mean that there was a clear other path that could have been taken that would have averted this. If anything, there are all sorts of other paths that could have brought on much worse crises much earlier. So what happens next? Where do we go from here? If Russia doesn't take any further military action, we are probably in for a long and difficult period. 
And by this, I don't mean a Cold War. The Cold War was global. The Cold War was two countries that took every action on the world stage with an eye to the other. There's no way this is going to be that. Russia is a regional power. It's unfortunate and inconvenient that the region in question is Europe, but it's, it's, not, uh, it's not as though the United States thinks about its Asia policy or its Middle East policy and thinks, well, how will Russia respond? How Russia responds and what Russia thinks is part of a really long list of issues that might be under consideration and not real high on the priority list. And Russia's actions in Ukraine don't particularly change that. Now, Russia does spend a lot of time thinking about how the US responds. And Russia will be a difficult country to deal with, as it actually has been, but more so because there's going to be more tension. Um, the other thing that I think it's going to, is important to keep in mind is it's going to be difficult because in both the United States and in the European Union, walking, it, it, there, there are people with, um, I'd say, two kinds of nostalgia. There are the folks who have a nostalgia for what things were like uh, a few months ago when Russia was a solid supplier of natural gas and there was a lot of trade. And OK, sometimes they were pretty annoying, but you could get along with them. And they just like to go back to that. This whole thing with Ukraine has been really inconvenient. So can't we just find a way to get back there? And then there are people whose nostalgia goes back a little bit further, who actually are nostalgic for a Cold War and a standoff, find kind of those paradigms comforting, and would like to get back to that, would like to look for any opportunity to do harm to Russia as being something that's good for the West. The trick is going to be navigating between that to really define the relationship. And the trick is also, and it's going to be really hard, is working with Ukraine in this context to get it to elections, to get it through a situation where the Russians continue to try to have, even if they don't take any more military action, they will continue to be politically active, they'll continue to push, and they will try to keep Ukraine and probably other countries nearby unstable. If Russia does take military action, I actually think it's going to soon find that to have been a really big mistake. Russian forces fighting their Ukrainian brothers isn't going to sell that well at home. East and South Ukraine aren't Crimea. Most people there aren't ethnic Russians. And even of those that are, a recent IRI poll found that most, solid two-thirds, of ethnic Russians in Ukraine don't feel particularly under threat at all. In fact, well fewer than 30% do feel anything remotely resembling a threat. Most southern and eastern Ukrainians, again, over 60%, have no desire whatsoever for Russian troops anywhere near them. And certainly, even higher numbers of Ukrainians as a whole feel this way. If Russia takes military action in Ukraine, it's not sanctions that are going to hurt it. It's the effects of the act itself. It's being stuck in a war in Ukraine and its neighboring country that it actually thinks of as its own country. And Russia's had an, enough pain with Chechnya that I can't imagine that's something it wants. And that's with people that it doesn't see as ethnic brothers. So there are people in Russia who recognize that this is the case. One concern is whether Vladimir Putin and his inner circle fully get it. And in this context of this difficulty accepting Ukrainian independence, of understanding Ukrainian nationalism, there is a possibility that they don't. Right now, things are looking a little bit better. Um, kind of today, we've seen um, steps back in uh, eastern and southern Ukraine with negotiations between some of these separatists who have tried to take over government buildings. In one case, they got confused and tried to take over the opera, but you know, <laughs> um, that happens. Um, <laughs> 
the Russians are willing to negotiate. They have their kind of their, you know, they had been saying a federalist system, but now they're saying they will come to the table as long as people from the from the, all the different regions of Ukraine are represented at that table. So, you know, as of right now, it's looking a little better. But this one has been very, very difficult to predict. Um, my, you know, my crystal ball has failed miserably. Uh, so maybe some of yours have been better. So I'm going to end without any predictions and um, ask you for your thoughts and your questions to kind of continue this conversation about where we go from here. Thank you so much. So hello, good evening, everyone. Uh, good evening, everyone. My name is David, and uh, myself and my colleague. Corinne, um, have the microphones, and we'll come to you for your questions. And so we'll start over here. Thank you. Uh, a comment and a question. The first comment is your map is a little wrong. Uh, there is a Russian Kaliningrad. Yes, absolutely. Kaliningrad. I, I did. Yes, that should be the same color as the rest of Russia. It yes. Be. And that's the headquarters of the Baltic Fleet because it's ice free year round. Yeah. Um, sec the question is, do you think Russia is a geopolitical enemy of the United States? What, what's a geopolitical enemy? <laughs> I mean, I, I get, it depends on how you define it. Is Russia a country with which we disagree on some key things? Absolutely. Is Russia a country with which we agree on some key things? Absolutely. Is Russia an ally? Of course not. Um, Russia has all along been a country with some very clear interests of its own, which sometimes align with ours and sometimes don't. Thus far, the misalignments aren't in areas of our vital interests. So that keeps it from being that bad. The danger here is that it's getting awfully close. Um, does that then make it, you know, kind of this, the behemoth of the Soviet Union? You know, I still don't think so. I, I kind of, I think that, um, that, that's a little too black and white a way of looking at it. There are certainly, we could make it happen. There, I think there are people in both Russia and the United States who wouldn't mind seeing that happen. But I think in the long run, that would serve us very poorly. We have a question on your left. Hi, thank you very much <laughs> for a wonderful presentation. Very succinct and fun to listen to as well. Um, I, as I recall, um, when uh, the, not the Ukraine, but Ukraine gave up the, uh, their mm -hmm. nuclear warheads and military equipment, and uh, Russia and uh, United States, and was it England? UK, UK yeah. Yeah, the UK uh, signed a document of some mm -hmm. kind, and uh, to some extent, uh, people thought that this was a guarantee by those mm -hmm. countries, let's say America and, uh -huh. and UK, to guarantee the sovereignty mm -hmm. of uh, Ukraine. But uh, apparently America has now decided that it didn't say that. It was just sort of a statement of principle or something. And the Ukrainians are saying, hey, that's not what we thought. What was that document that they uh -huh. signed? Um, so the Budapest Agreement that you're referring to was very carefully negotiated. And the Ukrainians wanted security guarantees, and the Ukrainians did not get security guarantees. What they got was security assurances, which is mushy. And it's purposefully mushy, and everyone knew that it was purposefully mushy. And the reason, the reason Ukraine does not have security guarantees is not that no one thought something like this could happen. The reason Ukraine doesn't have security guarantees is because everyone knew something like this could happen. That's, and, you know, that's, that's the fact. Now, 
you didn't ask, but I'll go ahead and answer, whether that means they should have held on to their nuclear weapons. And I think that's, you know, that's a bit of a red herring. It comes up, we've heard it from Ukrainians lately. There are a couple of problems with this, really two. One is the nuclear weapons they inherited. They inherited some bombers and some ICBMs. ICBMs are good at going long distances. So I suppose if they had figured out how to retarget them, made sure they had control of the launch codes, they probably could have hit Habarovsk and done a lot of damage in the Russian Far East. But, you know, kind of getting, changing the trajectories, that, that's challenging. Now, Ukraine had some pretty good nuclear engineers, but it's not clear they had the launch codes. A lot of that's debated. The bombers, as we've discovered watching Russia with its bombers over the years, have proven awfully hard to maintain. Um, and doing that during periods of austerity and the tremendous poverty that Ukraine has uh, been undergoing, and especially in the last few years, its military has, just the corruption has killed it, I just don't see how that would have gone well. But there's another piece that actually just trumps all of that, which is no one in their right minds was going to let Ukraine in 1992, falling apart, poor, confused, and as it turned out, continue to be, you know, really a bit of a mess of a government, have nuclear weapons. I mean, that was why there was so much pressure. The real threat to Ukraine wasn't, you know, it wasn't that they, we promised them security assurances and they agreed to give up their nuclear weapons. We promised them money. We promised them they wouldn't be ostracized from the community of nations. And that was why they gave up their nuclear weapons, to have any chance at all. We have a question back here, please. It looks like another one of the competing narratives goes to the issue of the Jewish question. Uh -huh. The Russians articulating the view that these right-wing groups are virulently anti-Semitic. Mm -hmm. Something needs to be done about it. We need to step in. And then on the other hand, you know, a big article in the Times which basically said, you know, Jewish groups in the Ukraine are like, what are you talking about? We're happy as campers here. There's nothing going on here. Everybody settle down. What is your sense of what is going on on that issue? Uh, these right-wing groups are virulently anti-Semitic, absolutely. They, they like swastikas. They don't like Jews. They don't like Russians. Most Jews in Ukraine understand that um, they aren't a big part of the government, that the Ukrainian government ought to at least try to keep them under control. They might be a little too sanguine about this. Uh, Ukraine has a pretty uh, solid history of anti-Semitism. But then again, so does Russia. So I think for most Jews in Ukraine, you know, six of one, half dozen of the other, uh, possibility of association with the EU ought to do a better job of keeping forces like that in check than possibility of association with Russia. Um, you know, I, I honestly think if Ukraine goes forward, it will need to figure out what to do about its ultranationalists. On the other hand, I think France has that problem as well. We have a question on your left. Yes. Um, earlier, you said that uh, one of the reasons the Russians wouldn't act militarily is that they wouldn't want to be involved in a war with their brothers in the Ukraine. But what leads you to think that the war, if it did, or the Russian military mm -hmm. intervention, if it did take place, wouldn't be very short, brief, like the Georgian War or like the Crimean situation? So um, they left Georgia. And they're in Crimea, where the majority of the population is ethnically Russian. Um, and there's still a lot of people who are pretty unhappy about it. Most people in eastern and southern Ukraine, and certainly western Ukraine, are not ethnically Russian. They don't want Russian military forces. So while I think the Russian military is a lot stronger than the Ukrainian military and could certainly carry out a successful military operation to seize whatever chunk of Ukraine it chooses to, holding it would be really, really ugly. That's the part that I think they're nervous about.
We've got a question over here on your right. On the way over here, there was a tagline. I'm trying to find it on BBC News that Donetsk had declared that they are an independent republic. Um, so was that from today or was that from a couple of days ago? Because there's the separatists in Donetsk and a few other cities, Kharkiv, et cetera, seized government buildings and uh, demanded referendums and Russian troops and so forth. This has been going on for a while. These are kind of gangs of people, right? So, you know, there's this question of what does it take to demand a referendum? You know, can I walk over to Santa Monica City Hall and demand a referendum? Um, but it does keep happening. The news I got just before walking into this room was that the Ukrainian government had been pretty successful in actually negotiating with some of these people and getting them to stand down. You know, this has been moving so quickly. I don't um, eliminate the possibility that there's been another flip, but it's been going up and down for the last couple of days. We have another question on your left. So some people claim that the holding on to the military base in Sevastopol was an important consideration mm -hmm. for Russians. It, it's something that will also distinguish Crimea from the rest of Ukraine. Is there anything you wanted to say about that? Sure. So um, when um, the Soviet Union collapsed and Russia um, really, I still think somewhat inexplicably, let Ukraine have Crimea, a big question was what to do with the Soviet Black Sea Fleet, which was now maybe the Russian Black Sea Fleet, maybe the Ukrainian Black Sea Fleet. They tried to share it for a while. And then the deal was that Russia would lease, um, lease the facilities for it, uh, which it's done under successive Ukrainian governments, including ones that were ostensibly very Western-leaning. Um, the Black Sea Fleet is the smallest of Russia's fleets, um, if, unless you count the Caspian Flotilla, which, um, you know, there's a reason it's a flotilla and not a fleet. Um, it's not in great shape. It's, uh, it has not gotten the financing that the other fleets have. When people talk about the strategic significance of Crimea, they're out of date. And I mean, this is one of the reasons I wanted a map up here. What exactly do you think you can do if you still have to go through, um, you know, the, the Bosporus to get anywhere? Um, and the other thing that I think is worth keeping in mind, and you can't quite see it that well on this map, um, Russia was actually hedging against this a bit, against the possibility of losing Sevastopol and losing Crimea, because they've been building up facilities in Novorossiysk, which is kind of here-ish. It's not sorry, a little south south of Crimea, and this map is a little distorted. But um, so, so south of Crimea and kind of down into the Black Sea. Um, it's not as nice as Sevastopol. You don't quite get the access. The water depth isn't ideal, but it, it's a port. Um, so, I mean, I think there was a possibility of that, which also make, kind of makes this argument that it's because of the importance of Sevastopol as a base for the Black Sea Fleet that they, that they did this. I think it was a consideration. They certainly prefer to keep the fleet there. I think they're perfectly happy not to pay, um, pay to lease the, the, the land and the facilities, but they could have kept leasing the land of the facilities indefinitely with pretty much any government Ukraine was going to have. So I don't think that that was really what caused it. We've got a question here on your right. Uh, mine is kind of a two-parter. The first part is more of a devil's advocate mm -hmm. uh, thing. Um, all of these lands have changed hands again and again and again. Um, and just as you said, um, uh, Russians considered uh, Ukrainian to be a poorly spoken form of Russian. Um, in the living memory of my family, um, 
Ukrainian is a poorly spoken dialect of Polish because we remember this mm -hmm. western part mm -hmm. of Ukraine as Poland. So it's kind of a devil's advocate mm -hmm. of like, if these things change hands so often, why should we be concerned? Uh, my, my real question is, mm -hmm. um, I live locally here, mm -hmm. I live in West Hollywood, which has a large enough um, Ukraine, both Ukrainian and Russian population that um, you can actually vote in Russian for the mayor of West Hollywood. Um, I expected that there would be um, people marching in the streets in my own neighborhood with placards that they would be concerned over what's going on. But I don't see any feedback at all. Are you hearing feedback from people who are now American citizens who were raised in those areas and who are both Russian and Ukrainian? What's your feedback from these people? Okay, so sovereignty and does it matter? Um, Countries tend to agree that sovereignty matters because it's in their interests to agree that borders matter. And once borders are set and agreed by other countries, which is why it's so important to delimit them, everyone is supposed to respect them. Otherwise, yes, country, you know, land will change hands willy-nilly and craziness will happen and there will be more war. So if you can kind of agree on borders, then you'll have less war is the concept. And Ukraine um, had had uncontested borders two months ago. Um, you know, nobody was saying, you know, this isn't Abkhazia or, or South Ossetia in Georgia where these people have been de facto independent for years. It's not Transnistria and Moldova where, again, the government hasn't been running the, the territory. This was part of Ukraine and nobody seemed particularly to mind. So, you know, first there is the general question of sovereignty and then there's the one specific to Crimea, which is, that, you know, this isn't like, if, if this can change hands, then really everything is up for grabs, and that is a little scary. Um, what am I hearing? There were some protests in D.C. Uh, some friends of mine went and marched, and I saw protests in uh, other places. Um, I do have friends who are Americans of both uh, Ukrainian and Russian ancestry, and I hear various things, and I also know people whose families are of um, Russian background from Ukraine. Um, I know some very angry Ukrainian Americans who, uh, you know, now refuse to speak Russian and are posting on Facebook and Twitter that Russia should be wiped off the face of the earth. Um, I know Russians who suddenly feel, you know, very strongly about the fact that Crimea should always have been theirs. And I also know people from, you know, from East Ukraine who are worried not so much that somebody, that the pogroms are coming, but actually that these EU and IMF requirements are going to put them out of business with their small business or whatever else, that it's going to make the prices of energy too high, that, you know, at least if you go with Russia, either way, you still get the corruption. No one's going to do anything about the corruption. At least if you go with Russia, you get kind of a softer landing, which I think is also, it's kind of an interesting perspective you don't hear that much about because maybe it's not romantic enough, but uh, it's certainly one that I've heard. We have a question on your left. Would you agree that the oligarchs, most of the oligarchs, are either unhappy with this situation because the, the sanctions, uh, the bank accounts are being cut off and so on, their profits are going down, and therefore given their tremendous power, corrupt but tremendous, do you think it's feasible that they may take some radical action, including perhaps uh, the most radical, assassinating Putin? 
So I think you mean the Russian oligarchs as opposed to, say, the Ukrainian oligarchs, uh, who are also a factor uh, in, uh, in this. Um, I think Russian business people in general are very unhappy about this and very nervous about where it goes from here. Because the sanctions aside, the official sanctions aside, Western businesses are pulling out of deals. Uh, because they're afraid of future sanctions, because they're afraid it'll be harder to do business, they don't think it's going to work out as well, and that, that hurts the bottom line. Um, what will these oligarchs do? My guess is nothing all that soon. I think um, a lot of people in Russia do think this will all somehow blow over if they wait long enough. Um, and certainly there are a lot of people in Western Europe who kind of hope that as well. Over time, and all of this is kind of, it's about over time. If you can keep this going, if they actually do start to feel a real sting, over time I think you will see real opposition. I'm not going to speculate on assassinations, but I think you can see a galvanization, not just of the business leaders, but also of everyday Russians who are unhappy with what they've done. And for this, um, I actually like the example of Georgia in 2008, but not the way everybody else brings it up here. In Georgia in 2008, um, right after the war, Mikhail Saakashvili, then the president of Georgia, was actually pretty popular. Presidents are popular when crazy things happen and people feel under threat. But at the first opportunity, his electorate threw him out, at least in part because he'd gotten them into a war with Russia. Give people some time, give, let them think it through, and they might just blame their leaders even if they rally around them in the crisis. We've got a question up front here. Yes, I was curious about the effect of Russia's big stick with petroleum and natural mm -hmm. gas and their control of it, how that would affect the relationship with the rest of the mm -hmm. EU community. Okay, so the big, um, the big concern for all of this is Germany, which gets about a third of its gas from Russia. But if you actually break down the kind of what, what gas is used for what and so forth, it is very easy, it would be very easy for Germany if it wanted to, to shift to other resources, at least in the near term, for things like um, heating fuel and so forth. So, you know, it, it's not something they can't absorb if they feel like absorbing it. It's a hassle. Um, it's, but, you know, I would argue that it's more annoying than painful if they really want to take it on, and that's the case for a lot of Europe. For Ukraine, what I think is very interesting is U Ukraine's real problem isn't its dependence on Russia for energy. It's its incredible energy and efficiency, which makes it an energy importer, whereas if they implemented just a few measures to use fuel better, they could be energy self-sufficient. We have a question on your left. Um, the Ukraine um, uh, is a choke point for the Russian energy export. And so the, and the uh, Russian economy is highly dependent on their co uh, commodity exports. So don't you think that uh, Putin's actions were driven by this vulnerability? So um, Putin, I would say that Ukraine was a choke point. Putin and... Um, of Russian governments have spent a lot of time actually developing alternatives to Ukraine, particularly for uh, exports to Europe. So I'd say the real choke point is if the Europeans stop buying. Because Russia can find a way around Ukraine. It's been trying to do that for a while, and it's actually built up an infrastructure where that's more and more feasible. Uh, Russia's real, so the kind of the interdependence that characterized Russia and Ukraine on gas has faded a lot. 
but um, the inter a different kind of interdependence, which is that Russia relies on customers as, as much as the customers rely on it as a supplier, is I think the one that is most important uh, in this particular calculation. Uh, we've got a question here from the gentleman. Um, when is Putin's time up? Uh, uh -huh. yeah, when is his time up? So he was elected to a six-year term in uh, 2012. Now, there's one argument uh, that uh, I've heard made that because integrating Crimea changes the structure of the state, um, he could call for all new elections and get a whole other term, and then you know, then and ostensibly he can run for re-election after that term because you know he can then have another term. So you know, he um, he could be around a while <laughs> unless he gets assassinated. Uh, <laughs> we have another question on your left. Thank you. Uh, do we have? Is there, is there any particular role that the UN, that the UN can play in a useful way, or this is another situation where they're perhaps ineffective? You know, it's an interesting question because Russia has traditionally put a lot of weight on UN and resolutions and so forth, and it certainly was counting the votes uh, on Crimea. So, I, I mean, I think I wouldn't discount the symbolic value of keeping the UN engaged. Um, beyond that, uh, I, I mean, I think it is largely symbolic until, until and unless we get to the point of peacekeeping missions somewhere. Um, which, you know, hopefully uh, we won't. We have a question here on your right. Uh, I wanted to uh, switch you a bit, uh, focus on decisions made in the West mm -hmm. rather than uh, in Russia. Uh, most uh, countries consider their sphere of influence to go well beyond their boundaries. Uh, the United States considers its sphere of influence in all the Western Hemisphere, for example. I think more. What, what, what you've also, you also have to be, or beyond that, yeah. indeed. But you've, you've talked about the narratives we use, mm -hmm. the stories we tell ourselves to explain what's going on in the world. Could you revisit that brief comment you made about the stories that the United States and allies and NATO told themselves at the time they were expanding NATO influence to the east? Ah, that's, that's a, it's a very good question. I mean, I think... Um, the main story about NATO enlargement was that it was a form of democratic enlargement. That what these countries wanted to be part of NATO because they wanted to be part of the global community, um, the, of the global democratic community, of global democratic Europe, that they wanted the defense reform that came with it. Uh, the fact that they wanted to be part of NATO because they wanted an Article 5 security assurance in case the Russians invaded was not, you know, was recognized. But again, as with kind of this view, this view on Russia's part about NATO enlargement being bad, I think the hope um, in Brussels and Washington was that everybody would kind of grow out of that. Uh, and that the Russians would learn that this was all okay and they would cooperate with NATO and there's always talk about whether or not Russia would actually potentially join NATO, you know. And the idea was that NATO was no longer this defensive alliance about Russia. It was an international actor to bring peace and good into the world and countries joined NATO because they were part, they were going to be part of this democratic, stable community that played this role. I think that's, uh, that's the story that, uh, that we told ourselves. <laughs> no, I actually don't think it was delusional. I mean, it, this was what it worked, uh, how it worked for a pretty long time. Um, 
was it, you know, was it the same story for everybody? Absolutely not. Um, you know, was the, but it actually did help reform the militaries of these countries. It did help them bring, bring them into the democratic sphere of nations. It did help them resolve a lot of problems. Uh, so I, I, don't th- I don't think it was crazy. We have a question in the back. Uh, Russia's being polarized because of their actions right now in Crimea and Ukraine. How do you think that will impact uh, nuclear negotiations with Iran and separately uh, the dynamics of Syria? Uh, polarized in the sense that they're... Uh, the family of nations, they're being... Oh, I see. Okay. ostracized to some degree. So they have said that they don't see this having an impact on their other interests. Um, honestly, they don't agree with us on Syria anyway, so I wouldn't attribute problems agreeing with the Russians in Syria to this particularly. On Iran, um, they could do more harm if they felt like it, but as we kind of inch towards a nuclear deal with Iran, perhaps that won't actually matter that much. Um, you know, I think, I think this one, it's going to be interesting to see to what extent Russia is willing to cut off its nose despite its face, to try to oppose the United States in ways that are counter to its own interests, and also to what extent we and the Europeans are willing to take at least some inconvenience. I wouldn't argue that we should do anything that is actually counter to our interests, but there are things that, you know, we can do that aren't that pleasant, you know, like not use Russia as a route to withdraw materials and forces from Afghanistan. We can certainly do it without them. Uh, we don't use it for that much, but it's going to be a hassle and an inconvenience. So are we willing to do that? I think that's, um, but I think that's sort of the area where you're going to see things really fail, at least in the near term, at least absent the situation escalating further. We have a question up in the front row here. Unless I've missed something and I'm mis- uh, mistaken, it seems most of the rhetoric, both at the governmental level and um, in the community, against what Russia is doing is coming from the United States. You don't seem to see much coming from Europe or from NATO itself. And everyone is sort of suggesting through uh, that Angela Merkel may be the key to this solution. A, am I right? And B, why is that? Actually, Merkel's been quite forceful, at least in what she said. Um, I think you know her issue is maintaining a coalition in her country and more broadly that doesn't have too much of this nostalgia for you know not things as they were a month or two ago. Um, the United States, uh, you know, the United States problem is that it's um, it's speaking loudly and carrying a fairly small stick here because our sanctions, you know, we're not as economically intertwined with Russia that our sanctions would have much of an effect. Um, but I think the other thing that's interesting is when you say Europe, you mean Western Europe. You kind of, you know, there is this whole other chunk of Europe, all these countries that have joined NATO more recently, and they're pretty upset. Um, so I think, I think it's worth keeping that in mind as well. We have a question in the front. Um, you just mentioned Syria before in the earlier question. Can you expound a little bit about Russia's, why Russia's been so supportive of the Assad regime? Mm-hmm. So part of why Russia has been so supportive of the Assad regime is its very strong and enduring belief in national sovereignty and the fact that other countries shouldn't interfere in the internal affairs of any given state. Um, so, <laughs> uh, which, you know, it did have a really consistent position on until, until quite recently. Um, uh, so, so there's that. Um, Russia is very nervous about who might come to power in Syria next, as are we to some extent. Um, 
they were kind of right on the fact that we didn't understand we in the United States didn't really op- understand the opposition and what you know what kinds of groups made it up and whether these were people that the U.S. really wanted to align itself with. And I think increasingly we are hearing more other countries thinking of Assad as maybe the lesser of the available evils. I think Russia's position all along has been that Assad is the lesser of the available evils. We've got another question here on your right. So strategically, we have to assume Russia's got something in its mind why it's going through all this. And so Vladimir Putin has been quoted over the years, and the quote will be wrong, about the terrible result of the breakup of the USSR. So that's what he said. And sometimes it's good to believe what people say. That's really on their mind. So is it possible that we're going to go into a period now of push-pull with Russia and the world, not just us, in terms of the countries surrounding them, in terms of greater pressure of exercising greater influence? So I'm going to butcher the quote, but I believe Putin has also said that people who you know think that you can turn back time are not that bright, um, that you, you can actually get back to it. That you, you know, if you don't have nostalgia, you know, the nostalgia is one thing, but actually thinking you can do something about it is another. And again, you know, when people, whether in Russia or the United States, get nostalgic for the Cold War, it's important to remember the ideological standoff that was the Cold War, the global aspects of the Cold War, and I just don't see Russia exercising that kind of power. Uh, does that answer your question? Was that okay? Yeah. Well, you're shaking your head, so I obviously got it wrong. <laughs> influencing greater, having greater influence doesn't mean every effort would be the same as in Crimea. Okay. And, and so it could mm-hmm. be something far short of that, but mm-hmm. not getting back in the Cold okay. War. It's still pushing, okay. and apparently the United States is withdrawing. I hear you. So I would say that's not about the Soviet Union. I'd say that's about Russian Empire. Uh, you, need, you, you want to go further back in history. Russia, Russia is believed that it's supposed to have influence over this territory isn't a Soviet thing. It goes back so much further. I mean, this is why the Soviets took control over these territories is because they're Russian, by golly. <laughs> they belong to us, and we're the new government of Russia, so they belong to us, um, even if we have to do it through socialist revolution. So, and I think there's been a lot of tension in the West as to how much we care. Uh, and I think the hope has been that it would stop mattering, that you know everybody would develop economically and socially and politically, and this would all go away, and it hasn't. Um, are we withdrawing? So you know, kind of. I'm not sure the question is, are we withdrawing from Europe? Because I don't think in this part of Europe or Central Asia or the Caucasus we were actually all that there. When our, our exercise of influence in the world, most people would say, has been reduced intentionally. Well, and I, yeah, well, and some of it, I would argue, hasn't been very successful over the last few years, so there's also that. Uh, We just have time for a couple more questions. I think, uh, Corinne, you have one there, right? We have one in the front here. Uh, To what extent do you think that Vladimir Putin is a uh, scholar of U.S. foreign policy, and what lessons has he drawn from our experiences in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and even North Korea? Well, um, he's a scholar of U.S. policy. I think he's certainly a really smart guy who's paying attention. Does that mean he draws the right conclusions? 
I, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna answer your question um, with. Uh, th this may not be a satisfactory response. We have an awful lot of scholars of Russian foreign policy, myself included, and that doesn't mean we know what they're going to do next. <laughs> so just because he's been watching the United States doesn't mean he knows how to actually manipulate us effectively. <laughs> All right, I think we have time for one last question. And Corinne, you had. Yes, you've been raising your hand patiently. <laughs> Um, one issue that I haven't heard the U.S. media bring up is the nuclear arsenal that Russia has still. I believe it's the largest nu nuclear arsenal in the world. Um, our nuclear arsenal is slightly smaller, but it's newer and more efficient, possibly. But, um, you know, isn't that the real reason why the, the military option is, uh, is not on the table and, and simply won't be with um, this um, alleged crisis? So, you know, I, I would argue it's, uh, it's not about numbers. It is about what the forces can do uh, in terms of strategic forces. Uh, Russia and the United States have agreed to move towards comparatively low numbers. And um, the Russians are, you know, I haven't looked at the specific numbers. I think the Russians are actually further along towards getting there than we are. They've got an awful lot of non-strategic nuclear weapons, more than we do. So, you know, if you kind of, if you're just counting warheads, uh, they, they, have, uh, they have more. But, you know, if you're actually thinking about the possibility of nuclear war, you're not thinking about how many weapons anybody has. You're thinking about things like survivability, what kind of attack would actually happen. But as I said, absolutely, the nuclear shadow hangs over all of this. And a lot of people would argue the nuclear shadow is what kept war from happening uh, for throughout the Cold War. Uh, would the United States have taken military action in Ukraine absent you know, nuclear forces, if everybody had kind of unilaterally agreed to disarm. I mean, I think it's a pretty big if, but I'm actually inclined to say probably not, because we don't want any kind of war with Russia. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.